My name is Rob Heron. I'm the youth pastor here at Redeemer. Um, and as our senior pastor, Hal Farnsworth, often says, if you are visiting here to Redeemer for the first time, maybe you've been with family over the Christmas break, and it's your first time here, we're so glad that you're here with us to worship and study God's Word. Paul, when he was coming to Corinth, he was coming to a booming metropolis. Corinth was a lot like the New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world, rolled up into one. It's a booming city full of big, new ideas, full of a lot of wealth and a lot of excess. And like, if, if you've ever gone to uh, your in-laws for the first time, like I did this Christmas, I wanted to bring a great present. I wanted to bring something very impressive. And when Paul came to Corinth, what he came there with was not something very impressive. It was the message of the cross the proclamation of a crucified Savior. But Paul tells us that this crucified Savior and the proclamation about Him is the power and wisdom of God. You read with me 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is God's word. Pray with me. God, this morning, as we look at your word, we know that there is no power, no magic in my words by themselves. There's no magic in me being up here, but you have given us your revelation. You have given us your truth, and you've promised that your truth will set us free. It will transform us, and it will show us who you are in Jesus Christ. So I pray that this morning you would do that through what I say. In your name, amen. Whenever telling a story like the one I'm about to tell you, it's good to have a disclaimer that my wife gave me permission to tell it. And I'm going to tell you uh, the story of how I proposed to my wife. And like any proposal story, when I proposed to be engaged, it involved a lie. Uh, any proposal story usually involves some type of lie. And so my now wife, uh, this past January, we're dating at the time, and she suspected that I was going to propose sometime soon. But she didn't know when to expect it. And she kept asking for lots of clues, and I tried to put her off the trail, you know, like a liar. And so one night in January, I told her that I was going to Atlanta to visit a friend. And she went to her favorite restaurant, La Priya, that night to have dinner with one of her friends. But really, I wasn't going to Atlanta. I was camped out in her house setting up to propose to her you know, like a liar. 
And so that night she goes out and she's eating at La Priya while I'm back at her place and I'm lighting candles and I look real nice and I've got my little letter of things I'm planning to read to her, but I was dead set on surprising her. Whatever I needed to do to make it an unexpected proposal that was very important to me. Whether it was important to her or not, I didn't really think through that. But So she's out at dinner with her friend that night, and I expected maybe uh, 45 minutes to go by, and then she would come back. But an hour and a half rolls by, and even longer than that, and the candles I had lit had gone from this to this. And I'm looking out the window, <laughs> trying to figure out, when's she going to come back? The candles are going to burn down the house, and I don't know what's going to happen. But finally, she came back, and I hear the opening of the door and the creak and she's about to walk around the corner, and I know what I'm going to say, and I say the most romantic thing that comes to mind, which is, blah! (laughs) And what she does, she kind of just melts in that moment. She's kind of shocked, full of surprise, you know, first terror, and then kind of excitement, and then what comes out of her mouth, I'll never forget this, she said, oh no, I smell like La Perea. And she said, wait, no, can I go change? And I said, of course not. <laughs> no, you will not. Um, and so I you know, drew her towards me, and I proposed, and she said yes, and et cetera. And, but it was so important to me that it would be a surprise, because through the surprise came joy. That behind the shock and a little bit of terror was this great joy of the engagement. And in many ways, we're in the season of surprise. The Christmas season is all about surprise. And the gospel, ultimately, is the greatest surprise. The gospel is surprisingly good news. It reveals to us something very unexpected about what God has done in and through Jesus to save this world and to bring us to himself. And it reveals the very shocking an unexpected nature of who God is. The gospel is a great surprise. And the question is, what's your response to the surprise? Do you shrink back? Are you numb to it? Or do you, do you respond with love and with joy? And the problem is that we as Christians often are characterized by a line that Tommy Lee Jones' character in Lincoln says. He says it to another member of his political party. He says, Nothing surprises you, therefore there's nothing surprising about you. Nothing surprises you, so there's nothing really that surprising about you. What I mean by that, we have this sense that, yes, the gospel is true, but sure it's true. I don't, but I don't, maybe it's, it's, not hitting, it's not hitting me. The rubber's not hitting the road. There's a lack of awe, a lack of wonder. And if our awe over what God has done in and through Jesus is lacking, then our proclamation of the gospel to a world that does not believe it will be lacking. More than that, we we tend to make the gospel sometimes, and I know I do this, into good advice rather than good news. To make the gospel more palatable to this world or to fit our categories, we make the gospel into primarily good advice. If you believe in Jesus, it will make you happier. If you believe in Jesus, it will make you a better person. And while those things may be true, and they are true, the gospel is not primarily good advice. It's not this 
It fits our categories, good advice. It's primarily good and unexpected and surprising news that God has done something through Jesus Christ. And it does not fit into our categories. It doesn't meet our expectations. And that's a good thing. For non-Christians, if you're here today and you would say that I don't believe the gospel, I often run into this in conversations with non-Christians that um, they would say, if God really existed, he would do this. Or if God really existed and he were good, then the world would be like this. It would be different. So the question for you is not necessarily, are you willing to believe as a non-Christian, but Actually, are you willing to be surprised? Because the gospel is not the announcement that God has met all of your demands. The gospel is the announcement that God has done something beyond your demands. Beyond what you could hope for. And at the cross of Christ, God surprises us. He surprises us. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. In two ways. I want to look at how the cross reveals a surprising nature One, about the wisdom of man. And then two, about the foolishness of God. The wisdom of man and the foolishness of God. So first, the wisdom of man. What is wisdom? I think in our context, wisdom might sound like old hat. It's an old virtue, and when you think about wisdom, you think about old age, or you think about wizards, or something like that. Wisdom is sort of out of date. But in this context that Paul was writing into in Corinth, wisdom was highly valued, even ultimately valued. And wisdom was basically the human philosophy. It was how you understood what's true, what is the nature of everything around you, and how you make sense of things, and how you live in this world. And as I talk about this, I'm going to lump power in with wisdom. Because what Paul is addressing here is power according to the wisdom of man. And what Paul says here first is that the cross is folly according to man-made wisdom. The cross is foolishness according to man-made wisdom. And he says there in verses 22 and 23, you can look there, he says it's foolishness, it's folly, because the Jews demand miraculous signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. The Jewish people were looking for miraculous signs. They were looking for a Savior who would come, who would divide the Red Sea, come with military might, and destroy all of their enemies. That's what they were expecting. What they certainly were not expecting was someone who would come, who would call himself the Savior, and would die the death of a crucifixion. Because someone who died on a cross was under God's curse. Deuteronomy 21 tells us that. If anyone died the death of crucifixion, he was under God's curse. And so for the Jewish people, the cross was this great scandal. The word stumbling block there literally means scandal. It was gross. The idea that the Messiah would die on a cross, the death of a criminal, it's not only Foolish, it's offensive. So that's the first thing. But also, the Greeks, and Greeks being representative of all non-Jewish people, they seek wisdom. And wisdom is whatever is honorable, whatever is successful, whatever is logical. That's what's true. 
And so the idea that God would bring the ruler of the world here and that he would actually be defeated on the cross, apparently defeated, and then that would be the way that God would bring victory and salvation in the world, it's not only foolish, it's just stupid. It's ridiculous. But Paul goes on. Not only so the cross is folly according to man-made wisdom, but he says the cross is folly, in verse 18, to those who are perishing. The assumption about wisdom is that the more that you learn, the more that you grow in your knowledge and the wisdom that you have, the closer you get to truth, to understanding the meaning of life and who you are. But what Paul says here is that people do not reject the message of the cross because they are truly wise, but because they are truly blind. By demanding miraculous signs of God, they become powerless. By creating their own standards for what's wise and what's true, they blind themselves. They become foolish. For all our intellect and our abilities on our own, we are not able to come to a knowledge of who God is, truly. Because this world is perishing. This world, because of the fall, is covered in darkness. And it's not just that we need to develop better abilities to crawl in the darkness and find out what's around us, but God must pierce the darkness with light, or else it will ultimately perish. And in the same way, our minds are darkened by sin. So without God piercing the darkness, we will always remain blind, no matter how smart we become, no matter how much we learn about this world. There's this very tragic story about a woman named Blanche Monnier. She was a French woman living in the early 20th century. And what happened to her was that her family, out of just a gesture of pure cruelty, locked her away because she rebelled against her mother. They locked her away in a room for 25 years. And she didn't leave that room for 25 years. And they would put scraps of food through a slot in the door, and they nailed up the shutter so there was just pure darkness in there. No light in a room for 25 years. And during that time, in which she suffered what we can only imagine, she eventually was able to just discern things in the darkness, where her mattress was, where the food would come, things around her. She could discern where the rats were in the room with her. But eventually, someone heard her actually through the walls in an adjacent building. And so they called the, they uh, alerted the police, and the police came and removed her from the building. But when she went out from this dark room into the light for the first time in 25 years, it was terrible to her. The light was excruciating for her because her eyes had become so accustomed to darkness that she, she didn't want to see the light. As much as she hadn't seen the sun for 25 years, she didn't want to see it. It was too painful. And this is a picture of our spiritual state without God. That we can get a feel for what's around us, but we're blind in the dark. And not only do we not really see what's true without God piercing the darkness and bringing light into the world to show it to us, but that we need new eyes to see it. When the light actually comes, it's painful to us, and we reject it. We don't want it. The cross, what it reveals to us, is that man's wisdom is ultimately powerless. 
Not that you cannot understand things about this world, or even that outside of the Christian worldview, you can have wisdom. You can even have a lot of wisdom. What Paul is saying here, though, is that man-made wisdom is powerless, ineffective to give you a real and full knowledge of what's actually true. What's true in God's eyes. And that means a knowledge of God himself. Our abilities, our wisdom cannot give us that. So let's look at what is man-made wisdom say about power itself. Say that real power in the man-made, man-centric view comes from winning. We can see this very clearly just in the standards we put on SEC coaches. You not only have to win, but you have to win big. You have to win the right games and you have to win over and over again or else you're out. Not making a comment on current events, but that's just the way it is. We expect a lot of success from people around us. The cross, though, says that power does not come from being successful, from being the most aggressive, from being the loudest. Real power comes from meekness, because the meek do not assert their own way, but trust God to act, trust God to be powerful. The cross is counterintuitive. It moves against so much of man-made wisdom. Let's look at wisdom itself. The man-centered view of wisdom is that we can become wise through our own capabilities. The worldview of materialism says that what exists is only what we can study in a microscope, microscope or just observe. What's real is the physical stuff around us, and that's it. And the worldview of progressivism takes that further and says that, okay, we know more about this world than we did 2,000 years ago, so the more that we understand about the physical world and our universe, the more wise we become and the better off we become. So right now, we're more wise than we were 2,000 years ago, so obviously the cross is foolish. Christianity is foolish. Belief in God is foolish. It's not current. It's not progressive. But what the cross says is that man-made wisdom, if it's based on our ability to understand, will never give us the real, full, deepest form of truth. And so what I would simply say against or in critique of progressivism is that you can understand, if you could understand as much as is possibly, as much as you could possibly know about the tiniest particle in the universe. And if you knew as much as you could possibly know about the greatest part of our galaxy or the biggest thing in this world, you could still be totally blind to what's actually true. It doesn't matter how much man-made wisdom you collect or acquire without God enlightening you about who he is and what's really true, you're blind. But this also says something to us as Christians about what it means to know God. That we are all on the same playing field about what it means to know God. That you could potentially have the entirety of Scripture memorized and outlined and be able to teach a great Sunday school lesson and be completely blind. Be completely blind about the nature of truly who God is. Because without him revealing himself to you, you remain in the perishing state of this world. You remain in darkness. 
But the cross says that God has pierced the darkness. So secondly, we've looked at the wisdom of man. Now we're going to look at the foolishness of God and what the cross of Christ reveals about that. So when I say God is foolish, I might raise some eyebrows. But if, if we look around us, belief in God is often and in many places and progressively viewed as foolish. And God himself is viewed as foolish. That if God is actually the God that the Bible presents him as, then he is a bumbling fool, or if he is a cruel tyrant. But what does Paul actually say here? And what he says, actually, if you look in verse 21, is that God is pleased to work through what we think is foolish. You read there in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God is pleased to use what is foolish in our eyes to humble us and to save us. And so Paul is flipping this idea of God's foolishness in two ways. First, he shows us that God's foolish weakness His foolish weakness is actually his power. You can look there in verse 24. And this occurs alongside the resurrection. Not only did Christ die at the cross, but he rose again. But yes, what Paul says is, yes, at the cross, a curse was upon Jesus. And it was the curse of sin and evil. But by placing the curse of sin and evil upon Jesus, he defeated its power for all those who believe in him. That for all who believe the cross, this thing that is viewed as foolishness or weakness, is actually the power that transforms us. It is the power, the effectiveness, that actually brings us out of darkness into light. But more than that, not only is God's foolish weakness his power, God's foolish foolishness is his wisdom. At the cross, God gladly thwarted man-made wisdom. He thwarted our wisdom. You can look in verse 19, where Paul quotes from Isaiah 29. God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So there in the Old Testament, even, God promises he's going to do this great reversal, something we would never expect. But it's according to his promises It both contradicts our expectations, but fulfills what he said he was going to do. And so this thing that is viewed as foolishness and weakness, the death of the Messiah at the cross, has been God's plan all along. This was his perfect plan to save us. And for all who believe, the cross is the accomplishment of what brings us into true knowledge, true wisdom, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is true wisdom. And so for us, in verse 25, Paul says that uh, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The cross is the only thing that can make us wise. The cross is now our wisdom, so it's the lens through which we see all of life. We look at life through the lens of Jesus' death at the cross, and it shows us what's valuable, who we are, and how we are to live in this world. And that's totally counterintuitive. It's totally unexpected. I can't think of a better picture 
for this type of great reversal than the one given in Charlie Brown's Christmas special, where Lucy, she sends Charlie out to get a tree for their great Christmas play. She tells him to go get something aluminum and shiny. And so Charlie and Linus go out to this little tree lot, and all around them are thick birch trees and just great-looking, beautiful trees, aluminum trees, silver, shiny trees. And the one that Charlie picks is this tiny little dinky bear tree that looked like someone took a chainsaw to it and then animals attacked it, and then it just died. It is what it looks like. This tree looks horrible. So that when you put an ornament on it, it just falls on the ground. Can't hold one ornament. And that's what he takes. And he brings it back to everyone. And what Lucy says is, you've been dumb before, Charlie Brown, but this time you've really done it. And what Charlie says is, after everyone leaves, mad at him, says, I guess you're right, Linus. I, I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is about. Will someone please tell me what Christmas is all about? And Linus says, lights, please. And he says, I can tell you what Christmas is about. And what he does is he recites from Luke 2. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth goodwill towards men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Christmas, this great season, is all about, unexpectedly, God sending his son into the world to be born into poverty, to become a human being and be born in a manger. And in this son, in this baby lying in a poor, smelly manger, God's glory, his wonderful truth, shines out into the darkness. So the cross reveals God's surprising plan in much the same way. It looks weak. It looks foolish. looks like it's not going to work. But what it reveals is God's glorious and wonderful plan for this world. Because God brings healing to this world. He pierces the darkness, not with bombs, not with billboards in the sky, like we might wish he would, not with great intellect, and not in a way that fits our progressive society. He brought salvation into the world 2,000 years ago at the site of an execution of a man condemned of blasphemy and hung up next to two criminals. And there, God brought salvation unexpectedly. And this must change everything. First, it must change how we discern where God is at work. First, it it changes the way that we think about our need to be heard, demanding to be heard. And it shows us that we can be less demanding of being heard and more willing to be present. When other people or celebrities or sources in the media or family members contradict or maybe demean Christianity, we want to just shout louder is what we initially want to do. At least for many of us, we want to do that. We want to be heard. Or even if other people just contradict our own viewpoints, or our own worldview, our value system, we want to get louder. 
We want to write something in all capital letters on Facebook. And yes, as Christians, we are called to be out in the public square, dialoguing and proclaiming that Jesus was crucified and he is risen and he is our Savior. We don't need to be heard all the time. We don't have to demand everyone's attention because salvation coming into this world does not depend on people actually listening to us. It depends on God's power that he brought at the cross and his promise that the word of the cross will go out and it will bear fruit. We don't need a demand to be heard. But it also, what this changes is our perception of what's really important in the church. And as the person right now up here speaking, I'm very aware that it's tempting to think that the way to be most effective is to do the most obvious things, the most obviously powerful things, to be up front, to be heard. But what the cross shows us in its humiliation and glory is that God is powerfully working through the unseen, small, sacrificial acts of service. And I'm so tempted to begin to list out all the people that I see do this here in this church so often, not demanding praise, not demanding to be heard, silently, unseen, working away, faithfully working for the sake of God's kingdom. And it might seem like those are less important than something else. But actually, God's power is displayed and manifested through those small, unseen things. And the cross shows us that. This also changes, the cross changes our plans and our goals. Because as we get older, it's tempting to think that we graduate from service. That the older I get, the more influence I get, and the less I need to serve, and the more other people need to serve me. The cross shows us that because God condescended, became a human being, and died for his enemies, we never graduate from service. We never graduate from the humbling process of loving one another. That's here for all of us, and even more so as we get older. But for the youngest people here, what the cross calls you to is to reject current wisdom about what makes you secure and what makes you valuable. That you don't need, actually, to be spectacular to be loved. You don't need to be the most seen. You don't need to be the most popular, the most obviously attractive person to be loved. The world says you do, but the cross says that you don't. If you want to go out as you move through school, if you want to go out and college students, if you want to go out and do great things, it can never be to earn God's favor or to make yourself more valuable. Work hard, yes, but the world says that you must be spectacular to be loved. But the cross says you must be dependent to be loved. Dependent on the cross. And lastly, the cross reveals God's surprising nature. That he is infinitely powerful and infinitely wise. And yet, he sends his son to die for his enemies. As Christians, we can never get to the point where we exhaust wondering in amazement at who God is. That God would reveal himself at the cross. 
this is not, there's many things that I would maybe wish that God would do. Or often I think, if I were God, I would do it this way. I would not have come up with this. Because I would not have been able to dream this. This is who God is. That he sends his son into poverty, into suffering, into pain. For people who reject him, that's unbelievable. And if you have not received the gospel as surprisingly good news, what I want to proclaim to you, what this passage proclaims to you, is not a five-step plan for feeling better about yourself. This is not good old-fashioned religion. This is something unexpected, something amazing. And if you do not believe this morning, what I want to suggest to you, maybe it's because you have put yourself above God and are unwilling to let him be above you, to surprise you, to surprise your demands, to contradict and conquer your demands. Because God does that lovingly. Uh, When my wife, Mary Lee, walked into her house the night when I proposed to her, what she walked around the corner to was a proclamation of my love for her. She expected probably to get in and take a shower and stop smelling like La Perea, but what really happened was that her husband was there. Someone who loved her was there. And when we come to the gospel, what we are surprised with is that God is love. And knowing him is to know his love to know the love that he has for us. Surprisingly, in a world that is filled with pain and filled with so much rejection of this truth, God loves this world passionately, so passionately that he gave the most intimate part of himself for it. And that is a great, great surprise. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have not left us in darkness. But you lovingly and kindly surprise and outdo our expectations of who you are or what you would do. And I pray this morning that we would not try to put you below us, for you are obligated to love us, obligated to serve us. I pray that we would see the wonder, the amazement, that you who are infinitely powerful, infinitely wise, would do what seems foolish and weak and would send Jesus for us. In your name, amen.